the cost from the wildfires raging across our state and damaged property and lives lost will be unprecedented for Oregon, but the strong winds that stoked the flames and pushed the blazes toward populated areas, forecasters saw those coming, and the winds fit a pattern that's played out through history. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, reporters Cale Williams and Ted Sickinger talk about how climate change and federal forest management policies have put our state in this terrible predicament, where small blazes can turn into raging infernos, and whether we have any reason for optimism going forward. Hang in there. Here's our conversation. Cale Williams, Ted Sickinger, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure thing. Yes. Ted, you know, this is these are unprecedented times in so many regards that we're living through as a as a nation and or in our lifetime. But Governor Brown has described these wildfires um, all across the the state as unprecedented. Um, are they unprecedented? Is this really kind of a a time um, where we've never seen anything like this? Well, certainly um, within a hundred years, we have under. Um you know, maybe 90. Um, and and if you look at the, the number of structures that are going to be destroyed here, the number of evacuees, um, you know, the, the total acreage that's going to be burned during this week-long period, challenging, you know, some of the largest fire seasons we've ever had. Um, and I think she, you know, um, commented that, you know, the loss of life may be the largest we've ever experienced. So um, in those ways, certainly, you know, this this particular um, set of conflagrations and megafires is unprecedented in our lifetimes. But the, the east wind event that was primarily responsible for um, uh, these fires up and down the west side of the Cascades, it's not... Um, unprecedented. It is unusual for sure. And uh, but if you talk to fire experts and you go back in history here, mm-hmm. they will tell you that um, these exact wind conditions um, and the drought conditions, the combination of those two things we're experiencing, when you put them together and get an ignition, um, it has been responsible for some of the largest fires and in European history, um, and uh, the article that I read the other day, I cited the Yakult burn um, in uh, southwest Washington and parts of Oregon, um, the Tillamook burn, um, which is a very famous fire here in Oregon, um, and the the Bandon fire, and all of those were extremely destructive. You know, several hundred thousand acres in each of those fires mm-hmm. were consumed. And this is Oregon's version of the you know the Santa Ana winds that we so often hear uh, blow up these big fires in California. And it's you know it's very unusual, but it was forecast days in advance. Um, and we had two of these fires that were burning up the Sanium Canyon, and they were fairly low level, <clears throat> you know, several hundred acres each. But when these winds kicked up, um, they just bellowed these fires, and the result was just a spectacular run down towards the valley. So they're not unprecedented, but they're certainly unusual, and we don't we we don't have this within living memory anyway. I'm glad you brought up those Santa Ana winds, Kale. Um, you obviously you've done a lot of reporting on climate change and environmental issues, as well as 
living down in California. I, can you talk about the, the wind and the weather that we're seeing here in Oregon? And are those signs of climate change is playing out, um, those two factors at least? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, we can start with the weather first. Uh, the folks from the National Weather Service told me that this kind of all started when, you know, a big area of uh, low pressure moved into the central U.S. over Colorado. And I'm sure some of our listeners probably saw the stories about how they were having, you know, 100 degree temperatures in Denver. And then two days later, they were getting snow. Uh, that same system pushed a big front towards us. And as it did, uh, it created these winds that came over the Cascades, pulling dry air from Idaho and Montana and up that way, all coming out of the Northeast. As those winds come down uh, the, the west side of the Cascades, they compress and they get warmer and they get stronger. And that's how you end up with 50 or 60 mile an hour winds whipping through these canyons, like Ted was saying. Um, that phenomenon in and of itself is very difficult to tie to climate change. I mean, there are some preliminary studies and scientists, sometimes scientists think they've found evidence that, you know, the temperature gradients are changing. And so the jet stream is getting less strong that can lead to these kinds of things. But there's not a ton of settled science in that regard. What is settled, though, uh, is the conditions that were here in Oregon that, you know, made these forests prone to burning. Um, and that's warming temperatures and drought. Uh, basically, what the, the people I spoke to told me was, you know, as the, the temperatures here get warmer, um, you know, it changes precipitation patterns. And so you have snow levels going up and precipitation that may have fallen as snow in years past now falls as rain, mm -hmm. leading to lower snow banks. Those snow banks act like reservoirs uh, throughout the summer, you know, kind of doling water out onto the landscape as it's needed. Um, but when you have diminished snowpacks, you have less water to get out of the landscape, you have, you know, dead foliage that dries up, you have soils that dry out, um, and you just have a lot of fuel that is much easier to burn once it catches that spark. So a drought-like condition in, in the valley might not be, hey, it didn't uh, rain for a thousand consecutive days or whatever. It could be some of that rain that we're used to is typically snow at higher elevations, and instead of snow, it was rain? Exactly. Okay. Um, you know, Ted, uh, the president, you know, he's talked about raking the forest, um, which, you know, is a pretty absurd thing to talk about, but raises an element that is relevant, right? And that's um, timber management. Um, how does management of these forest lands contribute to the conditions that we've seen in the last week here in Oregon? Well, I mean, at a, at a high level, um, uh, what we're seeing now is a little bit of a leftover of the last hundred years of, uh, you know, fire suppression policy. And that's mostly on national forests where, you know, the, there was such a thing as the 10 o'clock rule that was put into place, I think, back um, in the early 1900s that the Forest Service would jump on any fire that broke out and put it out by 10 a.m. the following day, you know, keep it small. So natural cycles of, you know, fire, which are, you know, that is inherently part of the landscape, um, we knock that out to a large degree. And the fuel buildup that's taken place as a result of that, these down limbs, um, you know, um, low under the canopy growth and shrubs have built up to such a point that um, in many places in eastern Oregon and southwest Oregon, we have an absolute, you know, tinderbox 
Um, it's a little, and when the president comments about that, he's really talking about a federal problem that's in his own backyard, and the federal government is not putting enough money into those kinds of prescribed treatments. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of disagreement among the environmental community as to whether or not they should be expanded at the scale that we'd need to really have any effect on the problem. But when you're talking about um, the northwest of Oregon and west of the Cascades, those are completely different, you know, temperate, typically more fire-resistant forests. And, you know, getting in and trying to... Um, treat those would be such a phenomenally huge task that it's not clear that you really ever could could you know challenge um or you know accomplish the level of of treatment that you would need to do and and they're so productive that you know that growth would come back in a matter of a few years is what uh, you know academics have told me and there what is, do you mean by that well again we have we live in some of the most productive forests on the planet um, here on uh, in the Willamette Valley on the west side of the Cascades, you know, all the way out to the Coast Range. I mean, it's just you know the the, the level of growth annually is you know extraordinary, and you know to go in and try and treat those and do thinning, do prescribed burns, um, and put fire breaks in, and maybe that's a a, a little bit different, but again the the annual growth would overwhelm your ability to actually make a dent in that. Um, the situation is a little different on the east side, and they've had some success over there um, with forest collaboratives that bring together environmental groups, uh, forestry experts, local communities to go in and, and try and accomplish some of these projects. And it's still at a very, very small scale. And during the last legislative session coming out of a, a wildfire preparedness council that the governor appointed last January, there were a series of recommendations to, I think, quintuple the amount of treatment that we're actually doing on the landscape in Oregon um, and try and accomplish 5.6 million acres of forest treatment over a period of 20 years, and that would cost $4 billion dollars. Some portion of that, some large portion of that would have to come from the federal government. Um, but due to the Republican walkout over climate change legislation, that, that didn't go anywhere. And we were looking to kind of do some proof of concept on that, um, or some legislators were, and maybe invest $25 million, leverage some federal funding, and, and see what could be accomplished in really these most high-risk areas. But that didn't go anywhere. And... That's been an ongoing issue for years, um, and it's quite contentious as well, again, particularly on the west side where environmental groups, you know, this is, these are forests that we rely on aesthetically as carbon sinks for clean water, for wildlife, for recreation, and uh, the prospect of, of going in and, and clearing out big parts of those forests that then are going to grow back is, is anathema to, to those groups. We're talking on a Monday afternoon, and Senator uh, Wyden spoke on the Senate floor today about a bill he introduced last month with Cory Booker that would create a 21st century uh, civilian conservation corps. You know, he pitched it as a, you know, we have more than 2 million acres here in Oregon um, that would need to be thinned um, as part of, the, I guess, that growth that you're talking about. But, but you're saying that that would need to be done on a regular basis. It's not a one shot and you're done. Well, um, again, uh, the conditions 
you know, the, the forest types are very different throughout Oregon. So, mm. you know, on the east side, you have a lot of ponderosa pine forest, right. um, fire-resistant forest that, um, you know, fire has been a regular feature there um, of the landscape. And, and you know, the, the, those treatments would potentially work very well in that environment. Southwest Oregon, um, sort of similar situation, but when you're talking, you know, Tillamook County, Clatsop County, Columbia County, um, you know, down the Willamette Valley, those are very different forest types, you know, hemlock and, and Doug fir, and Doug fir is fire resistant as well. You have cedar as well. But again, um, the, the feedback that I got um, earlier this week from academics is that, you know, um, that shouldn't even be part of the conversation. It's just, uh, you know, it's a Sisyphean task that, uh, you know, we'd have to go at it again and again and again. I think, you know, Senator Wyden is right. You know, two million acres sounds like an underestimate of, of some of the work that needs to be accomplished. But uh, the federal government, I think last year, maybe spent something on the order of $625 million and they upped it to $640 million. I mean, they're, they're not investing in it. And it, it is largely... Um, a federal forest problem and the federal forests make up 60% of the forest land in Oregon. So, you know, that's where that, you know, that kind of funding would have to come from. Uh, Kale, what do you hear from uh, folks uh, that you've talked to since these blazes popped up? Uh, other factors that um, beyond the, the timber management that, that we need to be thinking of and, and addressing going forward? Uh, well, the people that I talked to, talked about kind of two ways of addressing the uh, the climate change aspect of all of this um, sort of near term and short term and in the near term you know people need to adapt uh, these types of conditions you know they're not going to be here every year last year was not a huge year for wildfires mm-hmm. um, but they are going to be more common moving forward um, so people should expect to have these types of conditions, not necessarily more often than not, but more often than they did previously, uh, historically in Oregon. And so there need to be things, you know, like the obvious things like, you know, keeping defensible space around your house, um, you know, having good emergency plans for evacuation uh, and things like that. Um, And then in the long term, I mean, it's a very simple problem with an immensely complex solution is that we need to drastically cut our emissions of greenhouse gases. Um, That's the simple part. The extremely complex part is how we do that. And as I think Ted was alluding to, um, you know, we've been hitting political roadblocks everywhere we turn. Um, So we should, we shall see. So, you know, Andrew, if I can jump in here a little bit, uh, you know, this, um, again, we've, we've got these temperate fire resistant forests typically on the west side. But uh, when it comes to climate change, there's a, a 2019 report by the Oregon Climate Change Research Institute found that uh, fire risk due to climate change is, is projected to increase, increase across the state by mid-century. And the, and the largest increases there are going to be in the Willamette Valley. Um, or some of the largest increases are going to be in the Willamette Valley. And, uh, you know, likewise, there's a, a risk assessment by the Governor's Council, that same council I was speaking of earlier, that specifically identified areas of Clackamas, Marion, Lane, and, uh, you know, much of Southwest Oregon as areas that are, are going to be at high and increasing risk of, of wildfire. And, of course, that's exactly where we've seen these fires burn. 
and you know because the the fire regime um, is so different here, you know the the return interval I think is what scientists re, you know refer to it as is is much longer on the west side. So the fires that do end up burning. Um, again, you do have these choked forests, and the fires tend to be much more severe. And you mentioned uh, Clackamas, Marion, Lane, and, and Southwest Oregon, and, and think back a few years to Southwest Oregon, the Chetco Bar Fire was, um, I guess, the size of um, one of <laughs> these mega blazes that we seem to have all over the state right now. Right, right. And I think the, the, the biggest fire in memory, I think it was 2002, was the Biscuit Fire, and that was about a 500,000-acre fire down in Southwest Oregon. Well, let's take a break and come back and talk a little bit more with Ted Sickinger and Cale Williams. Okay, Cale, so you said that, um, you know, people are, are increasingly concerned about about the risk of these fires happening, maybe not all the time, but um, more frequently. Um, <laughs> so how are we, how are you coping with that, I guess, mentally? And then how do we cope with that as we try to plan for living in, in a world that might be increasingly uh, inside? Uh, you know, I've sort of vacillated between calm detachment and full-blown panic attacks. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think as reporters, we often find ways to be like, this is the news. It's separate from my life. I'm going to write about it. It exists, but it does not intersect with what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis. There's no real way to do that right now. I mean, I'm sitting here looking outside of my window and it's gray and smoky. I took my dogs for a walk with a respirator on earlier, like one of those full paint respirators, and I still came in with a headache. So there's, there's not any real way to detach yourself from this. Um, you know, and in the, in the worst moments, I find myself thinking about, you know, where I could move, where I'm not going to have to deal with this. But that's the problem with climate change is that, you know, there aren't a lot of places. I've had friends from California who are texting me like, you know, Oregon was supposed to be my refuge and <laughs> you guys aren't having it any better than we are. Um, so, I don't have a great answer for you, Andrew. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, and and then Ted, I, I know you're obviously a, you love the outdoors, just like so many of us Oregonians. I'm wondering how how you are uh, mentally um, compartmentalizing all of this, as well as uh, the focus on on your job too, which has to touch on some of these more um, uh, life altering facts of of our future. Yeah, I mean, I think Kale put it pretty well. We do kind of compartmentalize. I actually just took a, a trip up with one of our editors today who lives down in uh, um, south of Estacada. And, uh, you know, I think we have actually reported together um, on some big wildfires in the past. And mm -hmm. her remark to me was that until you experience the direct threat to your own home, you really, you can't realize um the kind of um, just angst, worry, um, and, you know, how overwhelmed you become. I feel extremely fortunate that, you know, I'm not caught in the middle of that, but I, I went down there today, as I said this morning, and, you know, it was from one house to the other. Uh, these fires tend to burn in a mosaic, and, you know, one house was destroyed completely, you know, with all the outbuildings, and the next one was fine. And, you know, as these communities recover, you know, I think there's going to be an enormous amount of reliance on, you know, each other here um, and, you know, the goodwill of neighbors. And um, it's just, you know, it's extraordinary the, the, 
the scale of this, just in terms of the number of structures that have been lost, um, you know, uh, and property damage, etc. Uh, you know, again, when the governor said this is unprecedented, you know, in our lifetime we've never seen anything like this, and I, I think we're really only beginning to come to terms with what that's going to look like. And on an outdoor basis, again, you know, I think some of the the you know, this was burning in the Opal Creek wilderness. Um, you know, burning in, you know, many of the recreation areas. And again, I, I hate to, as a Portlander, you know, sort of throw that out, but it is, you know, these are the jewels of the state. And of course, you know, people that are living right there, um, this is, you know, absolutely um, tragic. So I'm glad you mentioned um, your previous reporting on some of these issues, Ted. Um, back in more innocent times, back in 2016, uh, you and uh, uh, our colleague Laura Gunderson went deep on the Canyon Creek fire. I guess from your reporting there, what lessons do we take from that or what are you thinking about in terms of how we should critically analyze responses to these fires, um, which are you know still going all across the state based on your work in reporting uh, back in 2016? Well, I mean, there there are a lot of parallels because the, the Canyon Creek fire, um, again, it was a, a, a massively powerful wind event that drove that fire um, down a canyon south of John Day. Um, and, and that, I think, destroyed probably 100 structures, maybe 40 homes. Um, and it threatened the city of John Day, and it was only a last-minute change in wind direction that um, the fact that John Day still exists today, really, um, uh, you know, very, very lucky. Um, but I think one of the things um, that came out of that was, was, again, these notifications, and these wind events were forecast days in advance, and mm. there were a lot of people here who, who didn't, you know, they they never got any notification. And, uh, you know, the city of Detroit, they were, um, you know, the fire came down so quickly, and they'd never been put on level one, level two, and it was really, you know, just people pounding on doors at night and saying, get out of here. And I wonder, you know, the degree to which uh, people should have been better prepared for that and and maybe you know this will uh, prompt that kind of thing um it's you know in that case we did a lot of reporting on how the uh the forest service had uh, put some of their resources elsewhere and were fighting fires um in other parts of the state when there were red flag warnings there on the mound here and uh when it came you know, to these fires that initially were fairly small before the wind kicked up, they really didn't have the resources to knock them out. And we're in a somewhat of a comparable position today. I mean, when I mentioned the Biscuit Fire back in 2002, yep. and apparently there were 7,000 firefighters on that particular fire. Um, early this week, um, the, the Department of Forestry's uh, fire chief, Doug Graff, said that we had 3,000 um, you know, firefighters in, in total, you know, and yeah. resources. And I believe you uh, said today on Monday, Ted, uh, we have 5,600. So it's right. And I think it. they were able to bring, bring crews in and you know, we've become a, a high priority here. Um, you know, and it, it, these are really hard to predict. Again, I, it's you know, blaming the, 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 the firefighters, you know, these guys are out there in heroic circumstances, but right. you know, the, the planning on these things and, you know, listening to what's actually taking place in the water, you know, the, the 
blow up of the Beachy Creek fire in Lion's Head were not unpredictable, um, but there was no uh, word to nearby communities, hey, we're going to put you on a preemptive level one evacuation here, and we want you all to be well aware. I mean, at Monday afternoon, there were still boats out on Detroit Lake. Um, you know, tourists were in town. It was the Labor Day weekend. So I'm not sure that we've learned our, our lesson or, again, this was such an unusual event, the, the strength of the wind and the, the runs that these fires made. But, you know, I do think that we have to, if, if we're going to be experiencing more fire, and I think, you know, there's little doubt that we are, then we have to be much more prepared um, for people to evacuate Um you know, the, the, again, there's some consternation, I think, up in the Sanium Canyon about the fact that these two fires had been burning for um, for weeks, um, the ones that blew up. And, right. um, uh, you know, that's going to involve more reporting. Kale, what about you? Um, you know, you've spent a lot of time in recent years uh, thinking and writing and uh, traveling um, about uh, traveling around uh, both the Northwest and, you know, the country. And uh, I guess Alaska is the Northwest or the far, far Northwest, <laughs> too, but thinking about climate change. And um, so what are you thinking about and where, what kind of reporting would you like to see going forward on, on the, these issues? Uh, I mean, I think that somebody, one of the, the folks I talked to at Oregon State said, you know, I was asking her about where she is able to find optimism, if any, um, you know, given the current state of federal action on climate change and, you know, even state action on climate change. It took an executive order from Kate Brown for there to be any movement on fossil fuel mitigation. Um, you know, and she was telling me that she thinks that this may be a bottom-up type of solution as opposed to a top-down. She said that she's encouraged by, you know, local measures that she sees. Um, you know, I wish I could find that kind of optimism and maybe it's just the weather out today and the smoke. Um, but it, it's, it's hard. Uh, you know, I think that there's going to be tough times ahead. And I think that these tough times are going to be felt by the least fortunate among us before they are felt by anybody else. Um, yeah. And, it's just really distressing to know that it's going to take it working its way up the social ladder for people to start caring. Um, I hope that I'm wrong. I pray that I'm wrong. Um, but that's kind of where I stand today. Yeah. I mean, that this, this forestry policy um, standstill that we've had for, for years, you know, perhaps this tragedy um, will move us you know, off the dime a little bit because again we've been in kind of a just a, a standstill for years uh, with you know, very similar battle lines drawn over um, conservation versus industry um, and you know some of the uh, again these defensible space requirements building codes and zoning you've got opposition to those from you know, um, you know property rights advocates from realtors um, and I, you know some of these are, are reasonable to, to go ahead and do, I think. And, you know, other states have gone forward and link them to uh, your ability to get insurance, et cetera. And there right. are clearly, um, you know, issues with low income um, residents. Can they afford this? You know, do you have penalties? Do you do retrofits uh, versus just new construction? But again, some other states have tackled this. And I'd, I'd point to Colorado in particular and, you know, uh, maybe this will move us off that um, that standstill. 
There's that optimism I was looking for. <laughs> well, it's, it's hard, um, you know, when you see, I'm a Jackson County native, and you see two towns that, um, you know, are not, um, you know, wealthy enclaves and Phoenix and talent, um, you know, much of the towns just kind of wiped away, it seems, um, you know, it's catastrophic. And you just hope that there's some sort of uh, uh, alarm bells going off that maybe we should uh, work together on something. Well, thank you both for taking time for talking. I appreciate it. Try and make a sound. Thank you. Yeah, try to stay healthy out there. (laughs) Will do. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with you, Oregonian. If you like this show, leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or tell a friend. Help spread the word. And take care of yourself. Until next time.